I'm going to ask a question, and I want you to be honest. Um, I, I don't want you to laugh. Uh, but how many of you are strange like me? I said don't laugh. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, I like to know how things are made. Um, I, I, I don't know. It's fascinating to see how things are put together, how we can take raw materials and, and make something of it. Um, you know, Facebook, unfortunately, is the bane of uh, our society and social media and all those things. But, you know, you, I, I can get lost in those quick videos. If you're on Facebook, you, you get these like quick videos of how things are made super quick. And it's like at high speed and, and people are forming and crafting things. And if you're ever around my wife and, and you're trying to have a conversation with her and she zones out for about 45 seconds, it's because she's watching one of those videos. Um, but, you know, after watching enough of those for a time, you know, you start looking around and think, well, I could do that in my house. And you, you forget everything that goes into it. Uh, but it is a pretty fascinating process. I, I've been fascinated with how things have been made since I was a kid. If my parents were here, they would tell you when I was a boy, I like to take apart my toys because I like to see how they were put together and those kind of things. I, I didn't always put them back together right. Uh, and I was sometimes given certain instructions when I was given something like, do not take this apart. Um, but one of the memories that I had as a kid uh, growing up is every year we would go to Ocean City uh, for vacation, Ocean City, Maryland. And there's a campground um, near Ocean City that has uh, water slides and all those things. It's called Frontier Town. How many of you have ever been to Frontier Town? Okay, so you know what that place is. It, it, it's a place that's modeled after Frontier America. And you walk through this town and people are in costume and they're, you know, forging all sorts of things. There's a blacksmith and a seamstress and all those things. Uh, one of the things that was fascinating for me is um, people that make pottery. And there, there was someone there crafting pottery. And just how they can take a lump of clay, throw it on a wheel, and it spins. And then just using their fingers and their imagination, they can make something beautiful out of a lump of clay. Well, that's what we're getting here this morning. In the text. Out of a lump of clay, the potter can make his vision happen as he applies skill and creativity to what is spinning. This is what God is doing in the world with people. Now, here in Romans 9, we're dealing with a very deep and significant question that is being raised. And the question is, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, is whether or not God's word has failed. Has God's word failed? And the answer to that is a resounding no. But the question was raised because the Jewish people, the people that were chosen by God to be his people and nation, had largely rejected the fulfillment of his word and the promises that were given in the Old Testament. And so the question was, if God's word is that true, then why are there so many people living without the Messiah? Remember, this is Paul writing this, a Jewish man himself writing about his heart for God's people. And then the question that comes out of that, has God's word failed in that way because of that situation? What does it mean to us? Has God's word failed or will it fail me? 
And so Paul strongly answers in verse 6 of chapter 9. He says this, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descendants from Israel. And so what Paul does is he, he says, from God's perspective, there are two categories of Jewish people. There's a physical category, a national category, if you have a bloodline. But then there is, more importantly, the promises that God gave to these people, the remnant. There's the spiritual aspect. There's a spiritual aspect of what it means to be truly in Israel, and that is to be a person that lives by faith. And to support that promise, Paul then gave us the mystery of what these categories show. And it's the mystery of unconditional election. So Paul goes beyond just saying that God uh, is overseeing these two categories. He invites us into this mystery that God decides who's going to be in the categories. Now, if you think about that, That's a sobering, humbling thought. Paul went on to describe that God makes that decision before any of us are born or before we have ever done anything good or bad. And to support that, he gave us the example of Jacob and Esau. Before the children are born, before they could ever do anything good or evil, God chose Now, this doctrine of unconditional election, in order to deal with uh, what comes up, uh, another question is raised. Is God a God of justice? I mean, if this is what He does, and there doesn't seem to be any preceding facts or information given, and He just freely does it, is God just in what He does? Because it seems from our perspective that God is unjust to do this. That unconditional election seems unjust, and so there's a question raised in verses 14 through 16. And the answer is settled. God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. This is what He does, and this is who He is. In fact, the the text tells us in verse 16 that it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So it's not our effort, it's not our desire, it's freely God's choice in choosing who will be a part of His divine plan. And there's a, there's a negative side of that. We looked at Pharaoh's hardened heart and the difficulty of what that means. And what we camped on when we looked at Pharaoh's hard heart, was both things were in existence at the same time. Pharaoh was hardening his heart towards God, and God had hardened his heart, Pharaoh's heart. And so we see in a hardening of a heart that God turns people over to a heart that has already turned against him. Paul brings this up because God doesn't just deal in the lives of the Jacobs, but he also deals in the lives of the Esau's of the world. God will have mercy on whom He will have mercy, and He hardens whom He will harden. That's how verse 18 concludes. 
And so now we have another question. Do you see the questions that are just piling up? It all started with, is God's word true? Has it failed? He answers that question. And as he answers that question, there's another question that is raised. Well, if election is a part of this journey, then what does this mean? Oh, and by the way, if, if the boys are the process of the election, and what does that mean? And is, is God fair in choosing? And is God just in choosing? And, and all of the things, like they're just, in this chapter, question after question is mounting up. And Paul is doing an expert job in handling these questions. And I'm going to say this at this point. Paul does an expert job in handling these questions. Your pastor, though, man, had a hard week in the text. I said that to a few of you this morning. Uh, Just thinking through this passage and what it means and how it applies. I don't want to say things that aren't in the text. And I don't want to start talking about things so deeply that some of you are just sitting there like, I have no idea where you are. And so I I finished my message on Friday and I walked into Pastor Dustin's office and I'm just like, I'm done. No more thinking. Like, uh, just that I needed some time to like stare at a wall. Because these are kind of, these are difficult things to work through. But Paul is expertly bringing these questions up because he's presuming the questions that are hanging in his readers' minds as they're hearing these words. He's a veteran evangelist and an apologist of the faith. Remember, Paul, and we talked about this in the book of Acts, uh, he spent two years teaching out of the house of Tyrannius, meeting with the people of Ephesus day after day. They would come in and as he's sharing the gospel with these people again and again, there, there would be people around him and, and, and I'm sure there were questions, there were objections, there were thoughts that would come along. And, and this isn't new to Paul, but he's dealing with these questions that arise. And so he's assuming another question as he just talked about Pharaoh's hard heart. And in verse 19, we read, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? So what he's doing is, he's basically inserting into the passage, one of you at this point is going to say to me this. And so I want to answer it for you. I think that's refreshing. I really do. I talked about last week why I love God's Word. And, and, and why I love God's Word is He doesn't avoid the hard things. But one of the reasons I also love God's Word is it presumes some of the questions hanging in our minds and hearts. That God doesn't say something that seems so difficult or so hard to understand and then just leave it there and walk away. But He invites us in and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is now testing the doctrine that he's teaching about God's unconditional election. That's refreshing to me. Some of you don't seem refreshed. But it is refreshing that God's dealing with these things for us. And so, this incredibly deep and confirming objection is this. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us For who resists his will? That's the objection that Paul is dealing with. In other words, if God is so all-powerful, as you're saying, Paul, if everything just comes down to his will, if he can do anything he wants, 
then why does anybody go to hell? Why does he blame anybody? For who resists God's will? Why doesn't he just save everybody? That's the question being asked. If God is this great, then why do lost people go to hell? Why doesn't he just save everyone if there's a divine pre-before-creation command and he knows and he calls? Why doesn't he call everybody? Has that question ever occurred to you? I know it has for some of you because I've talked to you about it. And so it's on our minds and we're going to try to understand it. I mean, why doesn't he just save everyone if it depended on the man who desires or wills? We know that nothing inside of us would seek God. But if it doesn't depend on the man who desires or wills, but on God who has mercy, why doesn't he just have universal mercy? That would be super easy. Now, I remember the first time I was reading this passage in Bible college. Uh, I was a young believer a couple years since I was saved. And when I went to Bible college, I, I, I told people that I, I was playing catch-up because I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't know all the stories and all those things. I got saved a year before I went to Bible college. And I remember sitting in uh, classes talking about the Scriptures. And when we went through this passage in Romans 9 for the first time, I was like, Lord, what are you saying? And I still felt that way even this week in some ways. But I felt like in Romans 9 that as the questions are being raised, I'm thinking, okay, now I'm going to get an answer. So the question is raised in verse 19. But what we're going to see in the rest of the text, God doesn't necessarily answer the question the way that the question is asked. It's like God is saying, you do not have security clearance for the answer to that question. Now, one of the summers that I was in college, I I worked at the New Jersey State Archives. It was a fascinating job. I I like history, and and I spent my summer cataloging probably 15 pallets of railroad ledgers that the state of New Jersey had acquired over one of the railroads railways and that railway had bought up some other railways and railways bought up some other railways so if like from the 1850s on to about 1960 i was cataloging all of these ledgers and all of these books so that they could make boxes for them and file and store them for safety but i remember my first day on the job i went into the deep uh, cavern of the new jersey state archives where they had all of those shelves that you know move by a button but they're all stacked together. And I remember going into this one area, this one room that had like security pad kind of access and inside were the founding original documents of the state of New Jersey. I could not go in that room without help or I would be breaking some sort of law. Uh, But, you know, it's that kind of thing. There are some things in life we don't have clearance for. 
And so what God is doing here in Romans 9 is he's dealing with the objection, but not dealing, it, dealing with it in the way that we can say, oh, okay, like it, it, it may raise some more questions in your mind. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're trying to, you're, you're trying to say, hey, by the time I leave here, the mystery is going to be solved, I'm sorry. Yeah, here's the spoiler alert. There's no mystery solved. And we need to leave the mystery there in Scripture. That there are certain things that are above our pay grade. There are certain things about God and what He does that are left with Him. And He doesn't do that to confuse us. But He does it because our minds are not like His mind. And so we just need to walk by faith and trust in what he is saying. So the question is asked in verse 19, but listen to the response in verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? I mean, the questions seem natural. God, if nobody resists your will, then why do you still find fault in us? And the answer is you're asking the wrong question to the wrong person. The answer isn't soft. This isn't God answering that through through Paul's hand, where he says, on the contrary, who are you? You need to understand how Paul is writing this. There's a certain authority in the response. Basically, what Paul is saying, as you ask the question, who are you to ask God anything? Seriously, that's what the text is inferring. It is presumptuous for the creation to question the Creator. For the creation, the thing made to question the Creator, the thing that, or the person that makes. God's justice and fairness, His sovereign work and divine choice are completely His prerogative. It's completely His. The creation has no right to complain because the question in 19 that is answered with the response in verse 20 about God's justice and fairness, the response reveals that there's a certain tension there of the complaining attitude of the heart that says, why did you make me like this? At the heart of the reply, though, is really a rebuke. And here's the rebuke. That when we ask questions like that, when the creation asks the Creator why He does the things that He does, The creation is really trying to condescend God to the creation's level. Like we're co-equals. 
Like, why are you doing and, and acting and making and moving this way in these things? And to question such motives is to admit that we know better than the Lord. Church, it is certainly good for us to be humbled in moments like these. Listen to how David wrote these words in Psalm 8. Psalm 8, verses 3 three through 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? When the creation looks at the creator, when the creation considers the creation, the only thing the creation can do is to bow down. Who are we? Job had those questions. I was talking to Dwayne last Sunday about this. Job had those same questions that are raised here in Romans 9 and in other places and the questions of our hearts. And in Job 40, God puts his hand on Job's lips and says, Who are you to question me? Martin Lloyd-Jones sums it up well as he writes about the difficulty that is presented here in Romans 9. He says this, We were never meant to argue with God and that we should never have started from the assumption that it was a discussion between two equal disputants. God is in heaven and we are upon earth. God is holy and we are sinful. God knows all things and sees the end from the beginning. God needs no defense, for He is on the throne. He is the judge of all the earth. His kingdom is without end. Cease to question and to argue. Bow down before Him. Worship Him. Get into the right attitude yourself, and you will begin to understand His actions. I think that's a very thoughtful response to the tension that exists. Psalm 95 Verses 6 through 7. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you would hear His voice. Rather than sit in judgment over hard things that are above our pay grade, we need to sit in worship of our Creator. that He would choose to work on our behalf. Think about that. You are not here by accident. There is no cosmic chaos that led you here. You are here today, if you know Jesus Christ, as a child of God, because the Creator divinely spoke and moved. And chose. And the mystery of that is along the way in your life you found grace through Jesus Christ. There is none who seeks God, no, not one. And yet here we are by His grace. Now in verse 21, as we move from that response, that rebuke, God's rebuke about the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? We read verse 21. Or does not the potter 
have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. This verse highlights the role of God. He is the potter and we are but clay. This imagery of potter and clay was well known to Jewish people. It would have been well known to Paul's Jewish audience in the church in Rome that came to know Jesus. Because in Jeremiah chapter 18, Jeremiah is brought down to the potter's house. And he is brought in to consider what the potter is doing with the clay. And in Jeremiah 18, we read that the potter is able to fashion the clay however he so chooses. Now this word molded that we read in verse 20 is the Greek word plasma. Now it gets lost in our English translation because we hear plasma and we think the thing that's in blood. But plasma is actually where we get the English word plastic. And this is the things that are molded and shaped and formed. It speaks to the moldability and shapeability of what is being worked with. God is in the divine process of molding and shaping everyone because that is his divine prerogative to do so. Vessels of honor and vessels of common use. Within the context, Israel was chosen for honorable use out of the same lump of clay. God is working in everyone. Vessels of honor, vessels of common use. Let's go a step further. What does verse 22 say? Vessels of wrath, vessels of mercy. Verse 23. God is working. He's molding and shaping Listen, we all come from the same lump. God is fashioning us after His own purpose. Now, for us that know Jesus, here's what we need to know about what God is doing and fashioning as He's working on us to convey His internal image or vision. God is working in us to conform in us, as we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Christ likeness. That's what the potter is doing. And the clay that is being called out of the lump that are vessels of mercy. Many testimonies of people, of craftsmen and artists, talk about the artistic process. I like how things are made, I struggle with artistic vision. I really do. I'm a stay in your lane person. I I need to see it. I need to see all the pieces. I need to see how it's going to fit. I cannot look at something and say, oh, I can fashion something else out of that. But it was said of Michelangelo. Someone uh, asked him, you know, when Michelangelo was, uh, uh, he was a sculptor and an artist and and all those things. Uh, He was talking about one of the angels that he carved out of marble. And he said, well, I saw the angel in the marble and I carved it until I set him free. I don't have that ability. But that's what God is doing. God's medium, what he works with, is not oils and paints and and carving. God's medium is people. It's us. That's what he's working on. God is the potter, and we are the clay. 
So in us, He's bringing about Christ-likeness. And God's internal vision is His own Son. And He's trying to do everything in our lives, using everything in our lives. Remember, everything. God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him. Right? Everything in your life is being used by the potter to create Christ-likeness in you. And the goal in our sanctification is God's glory. The Creator is fitting us for glory. Now, it's important to remember that the potter works from the same lump, and I had mentioned that. But one out of the same lump, verse 21 one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. The potter can choose, the potter can choose to make vessels honorable and some common. Now I was thinking about this and pardon the analogy, I don't want to offend anyone with the analogy, but consider if you were a lump of iron that was dug out of the earth and through the refining process you were made into steel. And you were like, okay, I'm steel. And you were shipped off to be made into an automotive vehicle. And you're thinking, yes, here's my chance to be made into something of great purpose. And you were sent to GM, General Motors Company. And you were on the pile of steel that was going to be formed and fashioned into one of their vehicles. If, if I was in that lump of steel, I'd be like, oh, I, I, here's my chance to be a Cadillac. Because GM makes Cadillacs. But then I'm made into a Chevy. Now, I know, I know, I don't want to offend any of the Chevy people, so let me offend everyone. Or if you're brought to Ford Motor Company and you think, I'm going to be made into a Lincoln, and you're made into a Ford. Okay, for your Honda people out there, I'm going to be made into an Acura. Oh, my you see that though? Out of the lump, the vision, the creator can choose out of that lump how he wants to use. And the steel can be used in however way and how he wants to use it. The potter has the right to do so. In verse 21, or does not the potter have the right over the clay. That word right is the Greek word excusia. It means authority. The potter has the authority, the ability to choose however he wants to use the, the elements that are at his disposal. He is the king and he is the owner and he can do with it what he wants. Now we need to make an important distinction here about this lump. I do not believe when Paul is using the, the analogy of the potter and the clay that what, what Paul is referring to is a pre-creation lump. Okay? Before the foundations of the world lump. I think what we need to see here in the text and what God is explaining as he's defending his divine prerogative to do whatever he wants with the creation, that the lump that is referred to, the lump of clay that the potter fashions, some for honorable use, some for common use, some as vessels of wrath, 
some as vessels of mercy, that that common lump is the lump of humanity that is impacted by sin. I think that's what Paul is referring to here. And that's an important distinction. God is working out of the lump of fallen humanity, the human race after the fall. God did not create Adam evil. He didn't. James 1.13 says that God cannot tempt us with evil. God is perfect in His holiness. Perfect in all of His ways. He sees fallen humanity. And it doesn't surprise Him. It doesn't catch Him off guard. He didn't stop. He didn't say, let's start over. But what He knew before the foundations of the world was that humanity was going to fall. And so He so chooses out of that lump to call out of that lump vessels of mercy. And there are vessels of wrath. Verse 22, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Much like with Pharaoh, God's power is put on display as he works in the midst of vessels of wrath. These verses are not to teach us about the origin of sin, the origin of evil, or why God allows evil. That's not what Paul is focusing on here. But it does help us to understand why God permits evil. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So here's what we need to know. And Jesus spoke of this at the close of the Sermon on the Mount when he said that the gate is narrow and and only few walk through it. The large amount of humanity will live on this earth and die separated from God's love because they rejected the Savior. The, The large majority of God's creation, right? Jesus said only a few find life. The large amount of the the lump is going to be an object of God's wrath. But what we see here in verse 22 is something of God's grace. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath, and, and, and I I know Greek enough to get myself in trouble. Um, But what I need you to know is verse 22 is very hard to translate in the original, from the original Greek language because it makes it seem like it's a question, but it's like a never-ending question. It's like a question that doesn't find really a resolved answer here. So we do our best in the translating process But what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? There will be certain vessels that are not vessels of mercy. There are vessels that are prepared for wrath. Why does God do this, though? What did God do in his divine intervention in verse 22? He's patient. 
He's not just patient. Paul says in verse 22, with much patience, he intensifies the magnitude of God's patience. Much patience. God puts up with a lot. Think about that. You know that from your own neck of the world, right? You look around. God puts up with a lot. These vessels of wrath are created by God. In his patience, God shows common grace by delaying his wrath. His wrath should be immediate. It should be. He's holy. We're not. He could just, if he had a finger, point out a finger from the throne and a lightning bolt comes out and shoots everyone off the face of the earth. That's what he, he could do and he would have the divine prerogative to do that. But with great patience, he delays. God shows common grace to people that don't know him. Like there are people living in our neighborhood that don't know Jesus and they, see, they receive common grace every day. They have air to breathe. I know some of, some of the weather messed up some of your plans this weekend. But God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust and the sun to rise the same. These vessels of wrath are created by God and His patience He shows grace, common grace. And as discussed in verse 18 concerning Pharaoh, God hardens those who have a heart hardened towards Him. It is not that God makes men sinful. We need to be very careful and not injecting that into what we read in verse 22, creating vessels of wrath. That God does not create men sinful, but that He leaves them in their sin unless they repent of it and turn to His Son for deliverance. Why is God showing great patience? One of the reasons is out of the same lump in verse 23, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand, that out of God's patience, the lump that is defiled, he chooses those that will be made into vessels of mercy. Here's the thing, guys and girls. None of us deserve to be made into vessels of mercy. None of us. But he delayed his judgment. He endured with great patience. He did not hit the reset button on creation. Why? So that we could come to know the Savior who turns us into a vessel of mercy that, oh, by the way, was chosen by God and, oh, by the way, set apart for that purpose before it was even brought to life. That's the mystery. That's what my finite brain doesn't comprehend. This is the mystery of God's sovereignty and man's free will, that he delays judgment and in patience finds mercy through the cross. If God was quick to judge, he would throw the whole lump out. He doesn't. 
But in God's kindness, he has prepared some vessels for mercy that were chosen beforehand. Why does God choose some vessels for mercy? Verse 23 indicates the why. It's for his glory. You have been called for God's glory. Not for yourself. Sorry to burst your bubble. Sorry, not sorry. You've been called for God's glory. And there is a moment in your life that is yet to come when you will see the full glory of God. Remember a couple weeks ago, we were talking about Moses up on the mountain. He wanted to see God's glory, and God said, you can't see my glory because you're sinful. Well, now, because we've been prepared so, we will see God's glory. We will see him for who he is in the future. We will be like him. If you know Jesus Christ personally, God is preparing you for an eternity of enjoying his glory. And every moment of eternity will be another picture of glory like you've never experienced before. That's what John hints at at the end of Revelation with the new creation of the new heaven and earth, that the earth will be filled with the glory of God. I I don't exactly know and can comprehend what all that means, but I know it's going to be a lot better infinitely better than what we experience now god is rich in glory and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory god is abundant in glory he shows it off listen god's rich in glory like i i I don't know what's important to you what you've invested in, what, what you feel like uh, is good for you. But, you know, those things, whatever those things are, you show them off, right? You don't hide them. You show them off. You do. I do. We all do. Whatever is really valuable to us. And it doesn't have to be money valuable to us, but it certainly can be. But something that we worked hard for, something that, that is important to us, we like to show it off. In the same way, God is going to show us off in the future because we are vessels of his mercy prepared for his glory. And I've said this before, but, you know, God created the angels, right? Yes, he did. And he created the angels, but they have no will. See, after Satan fell and a third of the heavenly host fell with him, he sealed the will of the angels. And angels today that are serving God are not deciding whether or not they should serve God or live for God. The created angels today, like Michael and Gabriel, when God speaks and says, go, they don't question, they go. That's what angels do. But for us, fallen humanity that has a free will, when God calls us and saves us and we find grace through the cross and we are transformed through Jesus Christ and we are prepared for something greater in the future kingdom that angels will exist in, will be a part of, I can envision in my mind God saying to all the angels, hey, you're good, but look at them. We're trophies of God's grace. And his glory is put on display. The potter can do whatever he wants with the clay. What this means is it's incredibly important. 
Why? Because for those who know Jesus, you know that the potter is fashioning you every moment of your life for something far greater. You know what that means? Don't settle for anything less. Really don't. There's a lot of counterfeits in our world today. Don't settle for anything less than God's glory. And you've only received it as a result of His mercy. But there's something else important to consider today for those that are here, those that are joining us online. And it's the message for those that do not know the potter, do not know Jesus. I pray that you hear God's patience. That it's not too late. God is showing patience, great patience, so that you would find life in Jesus. I hope you see a God who wants to work in your life, preparing you for something far greater that is full of His glory. And so as we close, I hope this made sense. Because I'm ready for a nap. But God is working, and he doesn't stop working. And so let's pray and thank him for that.